Well, I wonder if there has ever been a time in your life where you became aware of God's grace in a new and wonderful way. Maybe you were in a situation where there was no way out of it and then somehow, by God's grace and circumstance, you came through that awful situation. Maybe, and I suspect that for most of us, this will actually be our experience, that we had the burden of sin weighing down upon us, maybe before we were converted. And then the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel which tells you that you can be forgiven and set free, finally took on new meaning for you as you listened to it and accepted it. During my time at college, a friend of ours had one such experience. Uh, This is Cyril. And Kirsty and I were great friends with him when we were at a church in Sydney. Uh, Cyril was approaching the end of his life and he used to, uh, through a miracle, used to be part of the evening service that we were part of. He was in his 90s at this point. The period of his life came where they took his licence of him Uh, Thankfully, he lived uh, on our way to church, so we used to pick him up every week and we used to take him home after church. And we did this for probably 12 months. You can imagine, we got to know him very well. Cyril was a man who had lived a long and diverse life. And above all the mistakes in his life, just like any elderly man in his generation, there were deep regrets from his life, things that he regretted. Though out of all the things that he found difficult from his life, it was his time fighting in the Second World War, which it was something that continued to haunt him in his later years. Cyril was a member of the English Navy in the Second World War. And specifically on the ship that Cyril was on, he was in charge of firing the torpedoes which meant that over the course of time, uh, quite literally with the push of his finger, he had been responsible for the deaths of many Japanese men. And as he continued into old age, it was something that weighed him down. He was a Christian man, yes. He was a believer in Jesus, yes but he still felt like he had done something which was unforgivable. And so every day of his life, he lived with doubt. He trusted in Jesus. Jesus was his Lord. But on the other hand, he had done these awful things that he could not reconcile the two together. So imagine my delight. As a student minister, two years into my college degree, Uh, not nearly as confident preacher as I am now, that one night as I was preaching about the grace of God and that he offers it to anybody, something clicked for him. Imagine my surprise as this man in his 90s came to me after the service, tears streaming down his face. You know English men, don't you? They don't cry, do they? (laughs) He came to me tears streaming down his face and he said these words I'll never forget them now I understand God's grace 
and for the first time in my life, I'm not afraid to die. That's a click, isn't it? It was wonderful as this, quite literally, old friend came to realise that Jesus' words in John 3.16 are indeed true. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the rest of his short years were lived in the end with the assurance that no matter what he had done, because he had come to Jesus, he was forgiven. And now we live with the assurance that he's now in heaven. I can't wait to see him again. I cannot wait. But I begin with that story this morning because last week we saw almost the exact same thing happen with David, didn't we? Where after all his sin, when he was finally brought to his knees, God said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Almost the exact same thing. Just like our friend Cyril, this was the wonderful message of grace to God's wicked king who had finally humbled himself before God. And the message was, David would be forgiven. Just like Cyril was forgiven as well. Though we also saw last week that even though God forgave David, there were going to be consequences from what he did. And so we heard last week the devastating words at the end of our passage that even though David would be forgiven, the child born from his adultery would die. And as the child fell ill, this week we turn to the second half of 2 Samuel 12 to see if God's promise to David could survive his wickedness. And what we're actually going to see is that Lord, the Lord had indeed taken away the sin of David. Have the passage open in front of you because we're going to work through it like we have done all the way through this series so far. As we approach today though, after Nathan confronted David last week, David was a changed man. That's what we see this week. Which means that when God spoke his word to David, quite literally, it had brought David to his senses. God's word has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Making you see what is real and what is most important. And so David finally understood what he needed to do. So let's have a look at what David did as his child became sick. As the child lay with the illness, we read these words in verse 16. David pleaded with God for the child. That's what David did. Which, if you think about the last five weeks, this is an astonishing way for the story to begin, isn't it? This is because David was the man who had disregarded God for so long, up to 12 months. Though now, at last, he sought the Lord. David finally realises that in the end it was not himself or a cover-up for his sin that he needed. Who did he need? 
He needed God, didn't he? And so he prayed for the child. For so long he had been a man who was only interested in himself. Now he finally cared about someone else. And in normal circumstances, this wouldn't surprise us, would it? Having a sick child makes any parent sick, doesn't it? But this is not a normal story, is it? I'm sure that David felt this sickness more acutely because who was responsible for it? David was responsible for it. Though we must notice that even though the terrible punishment had come from God, as far as David was concerned, did that make God unapproachable? It didn't, did it? God was not unapproachable in this situation. And this is something that people often forget when tough times come. Have you noticed that people run away from God when difficult times come? We need to run to him. Because in these moments, David teaches us a helpful lesson. The best course of action is always to come to God for help. And so David prayed earnestly for the child. And he also did this in the second half of verse 16. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. It's quite a scene, isn't it? David fasted and lay on the ground during the child's sickness. And his behaviour worried his attendants because he would not even be distracted from his prayers to eat. And this went on for seven long days. Though what we see next in verse 18, that all of this was in the end in vain because we read that on the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. Back then, seven days was usually the period of time which people mourned after a death. Therefore, the servants were worried about what would happen when the child actually died. Because what it looked like was that he had mourned before the child died. What would he do after the child's died? Would he harm himself? There's a strong possibility that they thought that he might end his own life at this point. And with this fearful possibility, they dared not tell him that the son was dead. Though despite their efforts and the situation, David knew something was up. Verse 19. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves and he realised the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. The news of the child's death is unavoidable. Six times in two verses we have heard that the child is dead. Go back to verse 18. The child died. The child was dead. The child is dead. David noticed that his attendants were whispering to themselves. He said, is the child dead? Yes, they said, he is dead. Six times in two verses, meaning 
that the terrible reality of what happened was unavoidable. David's sincere and constant prayers had not averted the judgment that God had spoken about. And so what will the grieving father David do? Will he harm himself? Will he end his own life? Will he give up on life, even though he may not do that? Well, it would be an understatement to say that his behaviour would have surprised his servants. They were expecting the worst, and so are we. And so verse 20 surprises us, because we're told that then David got up from the ground. After he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. That's surprising, isn't it? What we see here is that David resumed the activities of normal life, which, as we have not seen in a very long time, included what? Worshipping the Lord. (laughs) Though notice the order of what he did. Specifically, that he made himself clean for worship and then he worshipped the Lord before he ate or did anything else. Giving us a glimpse and a hope that David is now a man who is finally starting to get his priorities back in order as he puts God first before everything else. Though it's pretty obvious that his behaviour wasn't normal, is it? I take lots of funerals as a minister. This is not normal. I've never had this happen once. And if it does, you ask questions, don't you? Even his servants were confused. And we see this in verse 21. His attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? As far as David's servants were concerned, his behaviour felt like it was all in the reverse order of what was normal. On face value, it looked like he had mourned before the child died, but when the child died, he got up, ate and returned to normal life. What on earth was David doing? Well, he explained his behaviour in verse 22. He answered, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Here David tells us that his behaviour before, while the child was ill, was simply based on the fact and the possibility that it might make a difference for his child. David did this because he was not sure what God and his grace would do. As long as the child was alive, as far as David thought, there was some hope that it would work out differently. But after the child, David's very practical, isn't he? David knew that he would not be brought back, so there was no point praying for something that would not happen. 
God's will for the child was now known. The time would come for David to die, as his son had now died, but the child who had died could not return to his father. And it's important to pause on this moment because in this, I think we see David's quiet acceptance of the death of his child. And I think it suggests to us that even though it was deeply uncomfortable, even though David probably hated that the child had died, even though David probably most certainly hated that it had all come about because of him and his adultery, we see that in the end, David was content with God's wisdom and he trusted that God was good. David's a changed man, isn't he? Though in this story, actually, the biggest surprises are yet to come. Because while David's sin, though forgiven, had resulted in the death of the son, even though the rest of 2 Samuel will pick up all the other judgments about the sword never departing his house, the rest of our story today in chapter 12 tracks the astonishing set of circumstances that flow from God forgiving David. All the circumstances and consequences that flow from God putting away David's sin. The first of these was that God blessed David's marriage to Bathsheba as his household was restored. Look at the passage. We're in verse 24, where we see that after the death of the child, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. For the first time since she appeared in the story, Bathsheba is not called the wife of Uriah. She's now called David's wife. And also for the first time in the story, David treats her like his wife, doesn't he? As we see him comforting her. There'd been no mention of him comforting her when she mourned the death of Uriah, her husband, but now David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. How on earth is this possible? Did David come clean to her about Uriah? I'm sure that he did. How could she not know? Everybody else seemed to know in the kingdom. Did he tell her about his part in the death of their child? I'm sure he did that as well. Then how is it possible that he was able to comfort her? How could that really happen? Well, it was a miracle of grace. The Lord really had put away David's sin. And I gather that this was the only way that their marriage could have continued. Because it would seem that through the putting away of David's sin by God, by this happening meant that Bathsheba, could forgive David of his sin as well. It would appear that Bathsheba was also able to put away David's sin, possibly with the clear evidence that he was a changed man. 
But in this we see that God's grace had not only restored David's relationship with his heavenly father, but with his wife too. David's sin really had been put away. And then the picture of David's restored life continues, where we see that after comforting Bathsheba in the second half of verse 24, we read that he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. Just as David's comforting of Bathsheba meant that their marriage was real and loving, in the birth of another son, there is now nothing illegitimate about David's relationship with Bathsheba. And also, for the first time in their relationship, do you see what's happened? David did not take, did he? David went. Instead of looking for his own satisfaction, he sought to comfort his wife. Instead of the shocking and brutal words describing what was most probably a selfish rape in chapter 11, we hear of the sexual union of a husband and a wife, which in the end was an expression of their love for one another. David's sin really had been put away. But how can that be right? Did David, in the end, benefit from his own wickedness? Well, the difficult answer is actually no. Because what we see here is David benefiting from God's grace. If it weren't for God's grace, David would be dead by now. The Lord really had put away his sin. Which is picked up in the name of the boy. As they named their son, it was probably Bathsheba that named the boy. Uh, if you go into the Hebrew, but as they name their son, we get a glimpse into the new reality for this marriage. Because Solomon is a name which amongst uh, kind of, it, you've, got to, you've got to get there, but it means peace. How is it possible for David and Bathsheba to give such a name to a child that had been born at the end of such a terrible story? The Lord really had put away his sin. For this couple whose beginning was so turbulent and awful and sinful and led to more and more sin, they gave their son a name which in the end means peace. God really had put away David's sin. And as we've been led to believe that this marriage now had God's approval, it is confirmed at the end of verse 24. Because we read about this son and we are told that the Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. David's marriage to Bathsheba was now blessed by the Lord. Though all of the surprises in this story, this is the greatest. Because who was the one who had previously been loved by the Lord? David, that's exactly right. But now we hear explicitly that the Lord loved Solomon. Which is why God names him. He names him Jedediah. There's not anything too significant about that name. But in God naming the child, it would serve as a constant reminder that God had now chosen this boy 
Despite the wickedness of his father, God had provided a path for his promises to continue. If you remember back to chapter 7, God gave David some wonderful promises. And one of the promises was that one will sit on your throne forever. That God had a succession plan all planned out for David and his kingdom. And the son that the succession plan was about had not been born yet. Solomon is born. God names him because he loves him. Solomon will be the one who will be David's successor, though we will not hear about him again until one king's. How could a marriage with such a beginning as this one receive God's favour? How on earth could it? Friends, God's grace really is that amazing. It is, it is as simple as that. We can categorise God's methods as being completely unconventional and not what we would do, but that is how amazing his grace really is. And it is only through the grace of God in this story that we see a picture of God restoring David's household. He's restored relationship with his wife. They have another son, and the son is the one who will take the kingdom forward. And by the grace of God, this was not the only restoration which was to occur after David's sin had been put away because the story of David and Bathsheba ends by returning to the battle against the Ammonites at Rabbah that we left at the beginning of chapter 11. And we pick up the story in verse 26. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I've fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. Joab was always loyal to the king. We saw that in Uriah's murder, didn't we? And as the Ammonites neared defeat, the loyal commander of the army summoned David because maybe he knew that David needed some positive publicity. But he summoned David. Why? Because he was loyal and he wanted David to get the credit for the win. And so David is called to come and lead the assault, the final assault, on the Ammonite capital, Rabbah. And so we continue in verse 29, where we see that David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. Friends, this would end up being the last victory of David's life. And it's remarkable that God had restored him to the point where he could have it. It was a victory much like all the ones that he'd had in the past. Though we need to recognise what is very different here in this story. Because in this wonderful victory, concluding the military campaign that started 12 months earlier in chapter 11, we see that something is very, very different indeed. Because in David's past victories, the story and the narrator has been at pains to always tell us that the Lord gave victory to David. 
But what do we see here? Who gives the victory to David? Joab gave victory to David. And what you soon see in the story is that the picture of his former greatness would not last very long. And this is anticipated in the rest of the description of the battle because in David we once again get a sense that though he is forgiven, he was now a compromised king. Verse 30. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labour with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. There's a fair bit going on here. One of God's commands to Saul was to wipe out the enemies. Don't take their treasure for yourself because I am the one that gives you treasure. David takes the treasure, doesn't he? I think as well here, this this description of David enslaving their whole nation leaves us feeling that in the end, this is a very harsh and cruel way to treat the Ammonites. After all, in, verse, in chapter 10, what did David do to the Ammonites? He tried to be kind to them. He tried to make an alliance with them, to show them grace, to provide them a way, possibly even to come in to God's people and be saved. In, the light, in light of the grace that has just been shown to him, I think it is natural to expect that David would once again try and make peace with them. Though all we're left is with the impression that David was now a very flawed leader. He had received grace, yet he was unwilling to extend that sort of grace to others. And then the story that began in chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1, concludes in the second half of verse 31, where we read very simply that he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Friends, as we continue the story next week, we're going to see that even as David returned to the safety of Jerusalem, protected by the walls of Jerusalem, Picturing a dark cloud over his kingdom as they return is entirely appropriate. That is because great troubles lay ahead for David's kingdom because of his wickedness. But at this point in the story, it is a remarkable gift from God that the army was safe back in Jerusalem. And also that David was still their king even if it was only going to be for now. David's restoration as a man and as a king was remarkable, though we need to realise that it was not perfect and it was not complete. And so as we conclude, 
Over the past six weeks, we've seen what the depth of human depravity looks like, haven't we? Adultery, lust, murder. It's not pretty, is it? As we ignore that God is there and that he matters, as David ignored that God is there and that he matters, humans are capable of some awful things, aren't we? And by extension, just like David, you and I stand guilty as well because of our sinful behaviour. Though we all have also have seen in the last two weeks that God's divine grace opens a way for all of us to be forgiven, no matter what we've done in this life. This means that even mass murderers like David, even adulterers like David, even men who steal other people's wives like David can be forgiven. Though remembering that all sin in the end is equal in the eyes of the Lord, don't think that you're, you're uh, too unlike David. Because we all have great capacity for sin and evil. But remembering that all sin is equal in the eyes of the Lord, it also means that you and I can be forgiven as well. God doesn't just forgive the really bad people. Jesus came to die even for respectable people like you and me. Are we all that respectable if we're honest with ourselves? We're not, are we? We all need to be forgiven. And so, the, uh, and this is what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Because Paul was such a man, wasn't he? Saul, the Pharisee who killed God's people. And he says these remarkable words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Friends, my friend Cyril would have classified himself as being one of the worst. He wasn't, he was lovely. <laughs> but he thought that he was the worst. As the true son of David, what we see in Jesus is enough power to restore him back to life, but in the end, to restore all people to himself. But the best thing we see in Jesus is that he ended up being the saviour and the king that everyone hoped that David would be. Jesus is the fulfilment of God's promise in the end, to be the perfect one who would rule forever, unchallenged and unopposed. And so knowing that Jesus is great, knowing that he offers us forgiveness, I wonder if there has ever been a time in your life where you have been acutely aware of God's grace. I hope that you're aware of it every single day. That like me and my friend Cyril, because of your trust in Jesus, you can walk through every day knowing God's grace, living with the future hope that you will end up in eternity with him. Because the reality is that just like David, no matter what we have done, if we trust in Jesus, we have the confidence to say, the Lord has taken away your sin. And then we get on with living, don't we? Trusting him every single day. Friends, I'm going to pray for us.
Father, we are uh, grieved at different points by the things that have happened in our lives. Father, just like our dear friend Cyril, who went through his whole life thinking that he was unacceptable to you, that he was not able to be forgiven by you, we thank you that just for Cyril, that reality of your son who comes while we were still your enemies is our reality as well. Father, as we've reflected upon David and his story and the forgiveness that you gave him, help us to always run to you, not to run away or to run to other things, but to run to you for the forgiveness and the grace that we need so much. Father, as we've received your grace, help us to then live the way you want us to live. Help us to not be people who lived like David, after being shown so much goodness, in the end turning his back on you to live the way that he wanted. Help us to live in a way that brings glory and honour to you and not ourselves. Amen.